It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from uh, L.A. and uh, out here in New York, and we're gearing up for opening night of New York Film Festival, but you can have your own party at home because you've also seen the opening night film. So, uh, you know, we're, we're just going to merge up the two coasts here and dig right into it. The 13th, although we're, we're told it's officially called 13th now. And you think that's because of search? Well, you know, it's always a joke about VOD rankings that you want to have uh, the letter A is always better than something lower in the alphabet. But if you have a number, even better. So it can't hurt. It makes me crazy. I have to keep, you know, changing my copy, you know, sort of a last ditch title change. But the movie itself, which I saw over at Netflix, and by the way, going to the Netflix offices in LA, they're on Maple, they've been there for a while, and they have this um, atrium, which is this big sort of courtyard thing in the inside of the building, and then elevators go up, and the the offices are on the edges of it going up, and there's a screening room there. And uh, I was early, and if you hang out in that Netflix uh, area, you see so many people and so many people you know, and it's such a beehive of activity. As pe- you can see, that there are just tons of people going in and pitching, going in and pitching, and it's not. Everybody just, wants to kiss the ring these days. It's not just. I mean, they're talks. very strong on the documentary side, especially. I mean, that is just their. their they've been working on it for a long. You and I know a lot of the people there. Uh, Lisa Namura, is that the right? Am I saying it right? Please. Lisa Tell me. Shibura, Adam Del Dio, everybody who watches Netflix documentaries sees their names before the credits. and uh, It's great. They're so general. they're very strong and they know what they're doing, not only with uh, one-off movies, but with, you know, series like uh, Chef's Table and stuff like that. But anyway, 13th is a strong, very strong entry from Ava DuVernay and, and a very strong argument that she makes. Um, and the only caveat that I would have is that she's an academic. She's someone who comes from uh, a very strong history background. You know, she studied that in, in school. She knows her stuff. And she went to the smartest history professors and academics. She got Angela Davis. That's my favorite thing. She got her to talk, and she was brilliant, of course. But she leaned a lot on those talking heads in the course of making this argument. So let's be clear about what this movie is. 13th refers to the 13th Amendment, which, while it abolished slavery, included a loophole which basically said that you can still uh, force labor on people with, for criminal, who have criminal records, uh, for criminal acts. And that loophole, the argument of the film is that that loophole has engendered 150 years of racial bias that has caused everything from stand-your-ground laws to this corrupt prison system that incarcerates largely black males, that, that, that figure that, that's been cited so often that one in three black males is likely to do prison, at some, prison time at some point in their life. All of that stuff is traceable to this 
uh, amendment. And so the film is essentially steeped in academic analysis because that's what it is. It's a, it's like reading someone's. It's dissertation. a legal. It's like a legal dissertation. It's an argument. It's very smart. I mean, don't get it's me wrong. Boring, it's we don't not boring though. It's not boring, and it hits you hard. I mean, it's got it's got the force of truth behind it. it, it, it you know, she's making us look at something uh, a different way. I mean, the movie that that I first saw that that laid out the prison argument was The House I Live In by Eugene Jarecki. And I don't know why it did win a prize at the grand jury prize at Sundance. But after that, the, the movie was largely ignored. It was really, maybe because he was, you know, went on to, to try to, you know, self-distribute or whatever it was, but, but the, it really didn't have the impact. It, it knocked me out when I realized what the prison economics were and, and what the setup was. And, and so I think a lot of people, this will popularize this in a way, to, to the, the argument, the way of looking at it. It's much clear, clearer in certain ways. I mean, it's, it's chronological. It starts right at the end of the Civil War and, and it goes through war on drugs and the Civil Rights Movement and then reaches... Uh, Reagan and Nixon are, are very yeah. clear. And Law and order is very clear. To your point about Angela Davis, who, who's notab notably reclusive in terms Doesn't of Doesn't do interviews she, much. But she, she did surface in a great documentary a couple of years ago called Black Power Mixtape, providing some of the voiceover narration for this movie that included all this uh, Swedish footage uh, that hadn't been seen before of, of the Black Power movement. And, and what that signals is when she believes that this thing is serving a very specific historical purpose, she can be coaxed into participating. And, and clearly that's what's going on here. I mean, it, it may not be explicit, but you can see that this is a movie that has the president's seal of approval as well. I mean, supposedly she's going down to do some kind of White House screening after the New York Film Festival one. So this is a movie that that is that definitely hits the zeitgeist in a really specific way, and also I think is, a, is an ideal conduit to looking at some of the more cinematic achievements that are dealing with similar subject matters, several of which are actually showcased in the New York Film Festival lineup. You have Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, for example, which uh, deals with this young gay black man struggling against some of his social boundaries over the course of many different years. And that really deals with this kind of intimate personal struggle that he's going through. But there's a broader social and, and, and cultural context to, to what's happening that, in essence, is this is a guy who's in the universe that a movie like 13th establishes. That's right. He's an example of it. And he's an example of how we see people. And this is what happens with police profiling and, and uh, frisk and search and all these issues that are roiling around in our, you know, this couldn't be, the 13th and Moonlight couldn't be more more timely. And they're, they're both going to be in the Oscar race. I have to assume that 13th will be one of the contenders for the shortlist for documentary. And I think that Moonlight... Uh, I was. I just did a story about the the expanded list of of movies that are going to be under consideration this year that are very diverse and have all sorts of people behind and in front of the camera. And when I looked up the review ratings for all the different films that are going to be in contention, at the top of that list was Moonlight. I mean, no movie has been better reviewed. I haven't seen any negativity really. I mean, you could argue that it's it's a very grim. Very uh, small experience in certain you kinds of You come out on a hopeful note. That's one of the great things. That's one of the it's great a, things the about it. Almost. 
almost an almost romance. It's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. But um, and I cannot wait. I, that that's a movie I cannot wait uh, to see again. But the other movies that relate to Thirteenth that are going to be in the Doc race, I think, although I know there's some controversy around O.J. Made in America because it was, if you look it up on IMDb, it's a, it's an episodic television show because yeah, it was so on ESPN. But but it's still, I think, uh, very close to the same. You know, they, they, it talks about how the police misbehave and and the history of police uh, treatment of of the African-American community through the, the, the era that, that OJ was, was part of and culminating with, with the trial. And, uh, and another movie that's out there, not at the New York film festival called do not resist is also dealing with, uh, the, the way that police behave in a very timely uh, manner. And that one just says astonishing footage of riots and so forth that really kind of speak for themselves. I spoke to the filmmaker Craig Atkinson, and he uh, one of the it was sometimes when you talk to a filmmaker, uh, the way a movie is suddenly makes sense. His father was a policeman. He had really good access. He was able to sort of talk his way into situations, and he was a cinematographer for Heidi Ewing and and Rachel Grady worked on Detropia and other things. So he's he's someone who took his camera into Ferguson. That's him shooting that stuff. That was pretty impressive. And the one one other that is that is in the New York Film Festival lamp that we have to mention, even if just briefly, because I know we'll have to come back to it later, which is I Am Not Your Negro, this film that premiered in Toronto, was picked up by Magnolia, but I think it's only going to keep gaining traction now. It's Raul Peck, who's mainly known as a narrative filmmaker, does this really fascinating essayistic uh, experiment of sorts where he takes an unfinished manuscript of some of of a, of a piece by uh, of uh, James Baldwin, where essentially what, what Baldwin was trying to do was wrestle with three different legacies of of, of black activists who had been killed: uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Medgar Evers, and Malcolm X, and provide a certain kind of cultural framework for looking at the pluses and minuses of everything they were doing, as well as the tensions that they encountered, and then it also like Thirteenth deals with some of the contemporary resonance of, of this activism. And so you could not ask for more complementary work to 13th. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see those movies as well as OJ and Do Not Resist in constant dialogue. I've never seen something quite like that with uh, the nonfiction race. Where all what we have to remember, too, is that all these movies were, in effect, developed and greenlit and shot ahead of the inferno of crazy... Uh, insanity around the the whole issue right now. So it's it's a it's a, the whole issue of the police and the African American community, which is still exploding. So if we look at the Doc NYC shortlist, they uh, they basically announced what the top fifteen uh, movies of the year are. And this and it, is all it, which just happens just happens to co- coincide with the number of films that are going to eventually wind up on the Oscar uh, shortlist, and they're not the same, but they're often very, very close because uh, if the stats are pretty impressive. In last of each of the past three years, the Doc NYC shortlist had nine or ten titles that overlapped with the subsequent Oscar sh- list, and in the last five years, they've always screened the one that went on to win the Oscar. So let's assume that the Oscar will be one of these 15 films, Amanda Knox, Camera Person, Fire at Sea, Gleason, I Am Not Your Negro, that's what made me think of this, Into the Inferno, The Herzog, Jim the James Foley Story, Life Animated, Maplethorpe, Miss Sharon Jones, O.J. Made in America did make the list, so did the 13th, 
and the ivory game trapped and our favorite wiener <laughs> of course it goes last 13th gets to go first on most lists wiener will always be last that's they why call they it changed eight. the title i'm looking at it right they can't call it one wiener or something but the funny thing about that i actually i have a curious oscar question about this because i, I think wiener is a fantastic movie i rewatched it recently it's it's so engaging and fun i do think it's the best movie about a political campaign ever made yes even better than war room in certain ways but Here's the thing that, I, that I'm wondering is, is a movie like this hurt in award season because it's kind of this wacky, uncomfortable comedy of sorts versus these more consequential films that we've been discussing? Okay, so there's two different ways of looking at that. One is the documentary uh, branch is notoriously serious and, and high-minded, um, but they take they take good documentary filmmaking seriously. Wiener is going to have an advantage in the one sense that it, more people there's no question people are watching it <laughs> because it's just I mean, with each time that the, the publicity breaks on some malfeasance on the part of <laughs> its subject, you know people are going to pop that in the in the in the you know and watch it the DVD and watch it so or watch it on multimedia wherever they want to. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is get does it get onto the short list i will say it'll get onto the short list if it gets into the final five in other words it's going to be harder for it to get it's an advantage to be seen people will recognize it's good it, it should make it to the short list if it gets to the final five then it has a good chance of winning because that's the whole academy and they aren't as serious as the doc branch am i making even sense? this year though even in the 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 wake of oscars so white when there's such a pressure for the diversity element to be a part well, they're of not the all Earth. five gonna be or all nine gonna be i mean just assume that there are a few films on this list of 15 that won't that are uh, there will be some more that are also in contention that aren't on this list but assuming most of these films nine or ten of them are gonna make it um so it just got interesting in that sense. Yeah. And it should be it should be a really unique kind of dynamic between these different movies jockeying for attention and how many people are going to watch all of OJ. That's like another that. thing and how yeah. many people are in so there are people that I know for example I'm on the BFCA uh, broadcast film critics committee that's going to be picking the the or, you know we're going to be picking a group of films for everybody to vote on, you know, for for docs because we're going to do docs for the first time this year. Um and there's already some debate about it, the the ESPN one, whether it should be considered TV. And and I know that the because having having talked to Ezra Edelman, which not everybody has, I know that he believes that he made a film, and it's in different parts, and it's not episodic in the sense that it's one hour episodes that ran you know weekly or something. It's 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 five parts. They're all different lengths. They're broken into the lengths that they are organically. Um, you know, it's, it's something he, and they're, they're re-releasing it. They've, they just announced that they're going to show it again theatrically here in LA. They are very much making a campaign for people to see that as a film. So while we're talking about the subject matter of diversity in the Oscar race, it's worth returning to a movie that we've scrutinized many times over the last oh, few Oh, I know where you're going. We, we have to get into the Birth of a Nation thing because Nate Parker did this 60 Minutes appearance that's airing on Sunday, but was previewed for some members of the press. and Only AP, basically. It was AP that wrote up a big story about it. And he was unapologetic, and they gave some excerpts to them. He, and he says he was falsely accused, accused 
back in the day at Penn State, and he declined to make an apology. I feel like we're seeing the arguments of various marketing people and, and Nate Parker playing out in real time with these things, because why would he go on 60 Minutes and ju- just to make that kind of statement? It doesn't seem like there's any scenario in which that would help the film either commercially or in awards season. It's well, just- let me say that I'm, I'm pretty clear on what the publicity uh, advice to Nate Parker must be. And I have what to, is it? It, it's, it's to apologize to apologize to say you know, so sorry. this is this is not this is not the way that was, I, I cannot imagine the fox searchlight was looking for this story to be around this 60 minutes piece they you know so he is arguing that his film deserves more attention than himself and the rape accusation made when he was a student so you know this is this is not what people want this is not the way to go it just feels so gross it's like yeah i would love to see the 60 minutes piece about the nate parker story and how it's taken so long to actually make a movie about this guy in in these terms and I mean, that, even though I don't think the movie's great, I do think that the, the cultural element surrounding a movie like this, which is reappropriating a certain kind of revolutionary, kind of, you know, storytelling tradition. It's rewriting history I mean, and, yeah, and making it, it closer to what the real history was. And, and it's history being told uh, by the people, you know, who are the inheritors of it. You know, it's not about the white version of it. It's not about what William Styron wrote in in the 60s when he wrote about, uh, you know, the confessions of Nat Turner. So, so this is, this is, um, but what's so interesting about this is that back in Sundance, there was a narrative that Nate Parker wanted to pursue. And the narrative was, I gave up my acting career. I sacrificed everything. I made this movie. This is the movie that's going to really ignite uh, a new, a new version of, of this story. And and he really does feel quite sincere about bringing this story to to the public, and he still wants to pursue that narrative. And there's this other narrative interfering with it, and he doesn't understand how to change that. And he he's really stuck. It's too bad. Yeah, it's 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 really, and it makes you feel uncomfortable on a lot of different levels too, because it it seems to tie into a general sense of of uncertainty around how to put this movie out into the world. I mean, I saw. At a multiplex the other day, they were presenting costumes from the film as if that was somehow something you could do to lure people in to go see it. You know, it's like slavery costume. I mean, it just it felt wrong to me. There was that's, a weird. Uh, that's interesting. Well, they were they were their narrative. The Fox Searchlight narrative was going to be that this deserved the full Oscar treatment, and they're just going forward with all the stuff they had planned. You know, they spent seventeen point five million dollars to buy this movie at Sundance, and they still have to try to uh, make their money back. But the, you know, in Variety, there was a story from the, from the sister of the woman who, who was, who was, you know, who accused him and his friend of rape. And, and it, it, it says that he's still exploiting her, her sister in, in putting rape into the movie. Twisting the knife in certain kinds of ways. It just doesn't go away. You know, he did put rape in the movie and, and it just does not, you know, feel right. And then there's another, there's another movie called um, Audrey and Daisy, which is a documentary that I think could be in the conversation, which is about, about, uh, how how teenage rape continues to be handled, and, and I'm actually this this raises another another question, which is surrounding the film L. 
Um, I revisited it recently when I was in Fantastic. Oh, yeah. The movie you called a light comedy at uh, Cannes. Uh, it, it is in certain ways. <laughs> it has comedic light. elements. It, yes. But I will say that uh, I revisited it with somebody who felt that in spite of the fact that Isabelle Huppert is really great in the movie, it was just not something that could be easily recommended because it does sort of take too gentle a hand with victimhood in a way that's that's deeply problematic and so she while she refuses the movie... to be a victim is the is the argument that Upera would would make and and that Verhoeven makes so Except that so that, that she's empowered there's no payoff to that in a way that I'm not I'm not arguing against the movie I think it has you know some some mild storytelling issues I mean this is one that that I don't I don't know how I personally It is the French as, it is the French also. submission by the way Pat, new yes. news since we last spoke it is the French submission for the Oscar, but that seems like a real risk because when is someone, and that think piece has got to happen, right? Where somebody says, look, this is a movie that's essentially saying rape's no big deal as long as you just defy the whole victimhood label. No, I, the, here's the thing. When I saw the movie in Cannes, I was really shocked and surprised that everybody sort of went along with it so easily and that this argument you're making now didn't come up. And I anticipated and predicted that when it came to America, it would be received slightly differently because we simply, the, the, there is, I don't know how to explain it, there was a way that inside the bubble of Cannes, in the art film universe of Cannes, in the let's look at the film as a film universe, it was handled differently than it's going to be handled here. That's all I can say. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I just embracing for the conversation to get more heated around. Well, and Melissa Silverstein has already done it. You know, there are others who will as well. But she's just so great in this movie. And, and I, Isabel, uh, not, I, Mizzle, I, yeah. not Melissa Silverstein. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, even Melissa Silverstein I would, would have to agree. I mean, just like yes. the slight facial takes. Unfortunately, I still haven't seen the other movie, Things to Come, that she has this fall. But I, one she's, has to It'll that. only strengthen oh. her case. I think Isabel has an incredibly good shot at a Best Actress nomination because of both of these remarkable films and because of her entire career. This is one of those career noms that's overdue. And if they did it for Marion Cotillard and Emmanuel Riva you know, they can do it for Isabel. You think she can even vanquish uh, an, a late addition to the New York Film Festival with Jackie with uh, Natalie Portman? I think Natalie Portman is competitive. I think uh, Annette Bening in uh, 20th Century Women is competitive. We'll see that one as the centerpiece at New York Film Festival with the buzz is good. So that's another one that I'm super curious to uh, to see how that category develops overall. It's, well, so it's an unusual year. We have a stronger women uh, race than we do men, which is very rare. Right, it could get really down to the bone, too. So there, there's a bunch of uh, regional festivals coming up, and I think it's worth noting that the, these festivals, while not generating not, not, you know, quite as much hype as the other festivals that we talk about throughout the year, do end up playing a key role at this, at this point in the fall in sort of developing awards campaigns. The Philadelphia Film Festival, I just saw that they announced their lineup, which is opening with La La Land and closing with Arrival, but that's one of many. You have Hamptons Film of Festival, them. Middleburg Film Festival. You're going to a few things. I'm sure you'll cameo at, at one panel or another with, with some Oscar hopeful right in. I'm going to go down to Moralia, I think, I'm at the end of the month, which is one of my favorite festivals. You, you have... Uh, I, I, Carlo Vivari and Telluride and Moralia are kind of all in the same, and New York, um, the universe of 
of the sort of cool, uh, sophisticated cinephile film festivals that are well attended by, by people who are worth hanging out with. Have, uh, Neruda there, so you could argue. Yeah, Neruda's opening the festival, yeah. I mean, I, I went to Morelia back in 2008. I wasn't quite as attuned to the, the influence of something like that, but I do think it is, is notable in some ways that, you know, Neruda is a big movie in the fall for Latin American audiences. You know, and then Jackie is the one for, you know, the broader audiences. Both directed by yeah. Pablo Lorraine yeah. from Chile. Exactly. They're opening a week apart. So that, I mean, you could not ask for a better kind of megaphone for filmmaking talent as well as the accomplishments of both movies, both of which are also awards contenders in, in different categories altogether. Very much so. so. It's, a very, it's a very interesting situation. So getting away from all that stuff, there's also a couple of movies opening this week that we didn't really dig into, even though we've seen them at, at festivals, uh, starting with, I know, you're, the most exciting movie you've seen this year that you could not stop watching. Uh, Deepwater Horizon, Peter Berg's... Uh, Oy, I wanted to run out of the theater. <laughs> yeah, no, I can testify. No, I can explain. Tight. Yes, poor poor man had to sit sit next to me while I twitched. And I'm one of those people who's easily manipulated, you know, by a movie, and any thriller, any horror movie, any anything suspenseful. I'm a twitcher. I'm a, I'm very very uh, you know responsive. Let's put it that way. Um, but but in this case, uh, he's. It, I, I think Peter Berg is an extremely talented filmmaker. I, I think he knows how to use the the uh, building blocks of cinema better than than anyone. And and in this case, he recreated this extraordinarily horrific disaster with all the explosions and the tension and the people it's blowing up. Inferno on the water, though. That's all it is. That's I mean, really all it soulless. is. And I with mean, heroes, you know, this makes Sully look like a subtle piece of art, okay? Yeah, you know, at so least popular. with Sully, you had a chance of saying these are ingenious human beings who are saving people who are pulling together to make something come out well. In this case, you, you, you have Mark Wahlberg and Kurt Russell are heroic that's that's about it. And then there are villains, and one of them is played by uh, John Malkovich in all of his snidely whiplash glory. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever, man. I mean, the funny thing about this is that it's Mark Wahlberg is yet again starring in a Peter Berg movie about a real life incident with the the Boston Strong movie, the Boston right. Marathon movie that's coming Patriots out this Day. fall. Right. Patriots Day. Which, uh, which I think at some point was called Boston Strong. And it's just, it, I feel like I've already seen that movie in many ways. I haven't seen this one. Who knows? We have to see it to decide. But, it, but I'm, it's. I'm willing kind to of... give Peter Burr. I was a fan of, of, of Lone Survivor. I actually thought, you know, he did a really good job with that. But, but this is. The, I think where he falters is in, is in giving us some layers in the storytelling. It isn't about his execution, it's about how, you know, how how subtle and, and interesting the, the real development of the characters in the story can be. Well, I don't know. I didn't care much for Lone Survivor, but I will say that there is one uh, moment towards the end of the movie where Wahlberg you know, kind of bonds or tries to save this young child, and we don't have a moment like that in Deepwater Horizon. I mean, he, does, he does try to save somebody towards the end of the movie, inevitably, but that person has no real personality or, or whatever. It's just no depth. You don't care about what's happening. And in many ways, in spite of the fact that this was a very sincere tribute, at least at, you know, the surfaces seem to suggest that, it, it seems more like an insult because it's about this one guy surviving rather than the 11 people that died. They're just relegated to the credits. 
So I don't really understand. There's a dissonance between the tribute and the star of the show, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't quite add up in terms of what, what they're trying to achieve with this one. And it's not tracking very well. I don't think people want to go see a movie like this. It's I not... think they look at the trailer and they instinctively recognize that what they're signing up for is, is, is a horror show. So speaking, speaking of, of, of you know, what, what's, what people want to see versus what they don't want to see, we should talk about the crowd pleaser that's opening this weekend and, and wade into dicey territory here in which you, know, you may or may not accuse me of implicit bias as we talk about Queen of Katwe, Mira Nair's new film, uh, the Disney film about this uh, African, young African woman who became a chess champion, which I found to be pretty obvious and sentimental and, and, and straightforward, and I think you dug it. I was impressed... I thought this this is an example of what hiring the right director can do to elevate material that would otherwise be Disney sports competition heart tugging formula movie making and That's and I I disagree. I think I think the fact that it's shot in Katwe by a woman who lives in Uganda by a woman who understands, you know, how to take the details and the vivid, vivid um, uh, life that's in front of her, and 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 it's also elevated by uh, David Ayelowo and uh, Lupita Nyong'o, and and Lupita Nyong'o is is remarkable as the mother in this in this story, and I don't and, think they give her that much to do. I I felt to a large degree like there there was plenty of talent on screen here and, and, the, and the movie doesn't ever kind of rose to that level. It, it's not, a, it's not, I didn't find it very satisfying. It's certainly not very surprising. Well, it doesn't seem to have pulled you in. I was cheering for this girl who was, you know, this poverty stricken, you know, face sort of this, this creature of, of who had, who had, you, you didn't, you could see that there was intelligence behind her eyes, but she had just been so beaten down. And this guy, um, this played by David Yellowo, pulls her into the chess club, teaches her how to play. She becomes this champion. She becomes this extraordinarily bright, smart, incredibly gifted uh, chess master. And, and, and her mother is resisting her and, and worried that she's going to be disappointed in life and eventually comes around to her side. And I just was very moved by the whole thing. I think, I think it's more than you're giving it credit for. Well, I just, I, I, it didn't, by the way. It opened in limited release last week, as far as the box office goes, and it and it was not strong. And it's gonna, you know, they're they're gonna spend some money and take it out today. But um, I, I suspect that on this, it's gotten very good reviews and very good attention. But on the surface of it, it doesn't. It probably is too familiar for people. It is better than Deepwater Horizon. I'll give you that much, and better than Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, the Tim Burton movie that I found to be totally half baked. So. You know, it's all relative, and I don't want to be the, the obnoxious male critic beating up on this movie, this story of female empowerment, which, it, you know, it works the way that it's supposed to. I think <laughs> you sound just, so condescending. You do. I mean, you this must is the, know that. <laughs> this is the nature of the profession sometimes. We have to be honest about things and then condescend in the process, but it's all in the service of good art. So next week, we'll reconvene, and New York Film Festival will still be going on, and, and we'll have some new titles to, to anticipate. And... Uh, then a whole nother week after that. So we're, we're in a, a good place right now with lots of exciting movies to talk about. And um, I'm off to opening night. Have fun. Bye. Lucky. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.